I've loved movies almost since the womb. When I hear that 20th Century Fox drum roll and horns, I still think of Star Wars, the original, from 1976, and the adaptation process from written word, usually fiction, but not always, to the visual fascinates me. So welcome to Story Geometry. I'm Ben Hess. This is episode 15, Page to Screen, made up of four chapters. Story Geometry is sponsored by the indie audiobook publisher, Talking Book, talkingbook.pub, and produced in partnership with the literary workshop series Writing by Writers at writingxwriters.org. They're booking spots for the 2017 Generative Workshop in Boulder, Colorado, starting March 31st. The faculty includes award-winning writers and teachers, Pam Houston, Camille Dungy, and Andre Debuse III. Andre is also the feature of today's chapter one, and later on in the episode, you're going to hear from novelist B.K. Lauren, award-winning screenwriter Jonathan E. Stewart, and also screenwriter and award-winning fiction writer Alan Heathcock. Adjust those earbuds, sharpen those number two pencils, school is back in session, and beware, this episode does contain a few curse words. And we are talking about film and stories after all. So stay with us. Welcome to Chapter 1, 18-Year Overnight Success. So I sat down with Andre Debuse III back in May in Metau Valley outside the Cascade Mountains to talk about his approach to the craft and his rare and rushed Hollywood success story. So my agent called and said, well, I got this guy. He, he has, he's never made a feature film, but he's got backing, and I think you should talk to him. So I talked to him, and he's this guy from Ukraine, and I was impressed with his intelligence, and he said, you know, slight Ukrainian accent. He said, you know, somebody's going to take this, uh, you're going to make a lot of money. Some big movie person's going to give a lot of money, but here's what they're going to do. They're going to take your baby, they're going to chain it to a radiator, and they're going to rape and kill it. I said, oh, my God, do all you Ukrainians <laughs> talk like this? He said, no. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm not going to hurt your baby. You, you wrote a really dark book. I'm going to make a very dark film out of it, and it'll only be seen in art houses, and frankly, no one's going to go see it. I said, you're my man. I gave him the option. So we're talking about the film of Andre's runaway best-selling novel, House of Sand and Fog, which among its many awards was a National Book Award finalist, an Oprah Book Club pick, and a number one New York Times bestseller. The Ukrainian director is Vadim Perelman, who also co-wrote the screenplay, and the film stars Ben Kingsley and Jennifer Connelly. Here's more from Andre. What I liked is he was very loyal, not so much even to, I think it's important to give anyone who's going to adapt your work, and I've got a few other adaptations in the works. You don't want to control it too much. You've got to give them their artistry. They're, yeah. they're artists in a different form. You've got to give them some freedom, but I, but not, not so much that they totally kill the baby. Like, you don't want to make a tragedy a, a happy musical. I wanted to confirm a story that I heard about the creation of that novel. Uh, is it true that you were you were handwriting in little 15-minute bursts? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because, look, uh, especially when you become a full-fledged adult, maybe with spouse, kids, mortgages, etc., everyone's got a good reason to not get in the writing sessions. When I started House of Sand and Fog, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and when I finished, we had three kids. <laughs> and I, you know, I never missed a writing session. I try to write five, six days a week. But I was working as a member of the Migrant Farm Workers of Academia. I was an adjunct faculty member at five campuses around Boston. And I was, I made more money as a self-employed carpenter remodeling two houses. And it was under those circumstances I wrote the entire novel. And we lived in a small apartment. I couldn't afford an office. 
And one day I'm driving in my car and the radio is broken. I thought, man, it's quiet in this car. And so I began to park in a graveyard not far from my house, winter, spring, summer, fall, whether it's a carpentry day or a teaching day or both, I begin the day, I would just pull up to the graveside and I would take out my, my notebook and I'd write for about 17 minutes. You can get a lot done. I cut, I would cut two paragraphs, I'd write two more, and i go to work. On the way back, i hit the graveyard, do it again. After three years, I had 22 notebooks and took a year to type and revise it, and that became my novel, House of Sand and Fog, which made me an 18-year overnight success. <laughs> incredibly successful, well-acclaimed novel turns into a very quickly, for Hollywood standards, made film. Yeah, it's it was optioned, and, 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 yeah. and that turnaround was only, what, four or five years, so... No, less. It was like two years. It was bizarrely fast. And the film is excellent, and Academy Award nominated, and so how involved were you in the process, if any, and, and what did you think of the, of the film? You know, I was shocked that uh, I, I had a few option possibilities with the two books before House of Sand and Fog, but this one got dozens and dozens of inquiries to my film agent which shocked me because you know it's a very dark book that ends badly for everybody you know american films that, Don't <laughs> do that. You, well in the end everyone's arms are up and they're shouting yes you know <laughs> so i was shocked it got all this film interest to answer your question i thought the film is i think the film's beautiful dark if i had nothing to do with the story it came from i think it would, it would be one of my favorite films in terms of character and all that i really enjoyed it although truthfully i like the director's cut even more because it's 45 minutes longer and it's more like the book it's slower there you go. and yeah. the truth is i prefer novels forget my stuff but novels to film i just prefer novels i in short stories i because there just aren't enough sentences in films i like yeah. words i like words too but love me some film you're listening to story geometry episode 15 page to screen and you've now turned the page to chapter two. It's iffy. Options, credits, and collaborators. The publishing editor of B.K. Lauren's first book told her she wrote like she was raised by wolves. And she says that she tries to live up to that daily. Her novel, Theft, was awarded the 2013 Willa Award. She'll be teaching at two manuscript boot camps for writing by writers this November in 2016, and then again in April of 2017. We chatted outside on the spring morning back in Boulder, and you may hear some chatter and road noise in the background. I wanted to dive in and talk about your novel, talk about theft. And I heard a rumor yeah. about an optioning of theft. Yeah. So this is not just an option that you're walking away from and letting someone else handle. Yeah, I'm really involved. I, I uh, you know, if the movie hits the screen, which is always, you know, always it's, if. it, it's yeah. iffy. Yeah, it's iffy with, when you're... Uh, when it's just an option, but this is looking pretty good right now. And if it hits a screen, he's giving me writing credit, story credit, and producer credit. I'm in so, the presence of Hollywood greatness. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. But. And so, I mean, do you have a sense of the process? Are you going to be involved throughout all of production? And do you have any sense of casting and all, all that stuff in terms of who you would prefer? Or have you two collaborated on that side of it as well? Yeah, we, uh, we have a male lead. And who we really want, and he's interested as well. But, you know, until you have paper in hand and everything, it's you just don't know. Talk. Yeah. And we have a couple, couple of people uh, interested in the, the female lead, but definitely the male lead. Given all the, the buzz and the volume of content on, on television, episodic TV with Netflix and Hulu, and da, da, you're, this is going to be a film. This is going to be a, a feature film, a 90-minute, two-hour 
did you consider, no, this should really be for television or, or, or did you even have that discussion? Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's a pretty interesting question because we, uh, the director, when he optioned it, he optioned it for film. What happened is I wrote a version of the screenplay, talked with him about it. We wrote another one and we have several versions uh, sure. of the screenplay. Sure. And we looked at them all and we went, you know what? This would be really great for TV because we've got it, it's it's really morphed into something different. So if a TV network came to you all and said we'd love to option this yeah. for TV, it would be fine. You'd be like, okay, like let's. Or, or are you now set? No, we're going to make this into a film. Oh, I'd love TV. <laughs> I mean, I, I I would love that yeah. because you get to do the long you right. get to do the long character development. You right. know the formatting and the process of writing a script very different from your essays very different from fiction had you written screenplays before and if so or, or not how did you find that process is was it a different part of kind of the a writing approach for you or did it all seem organic and just different format on the page it's a little known fact that i used to write screenplays a long time ago uh 1980 something in the early 90s. So you, know, you have a basis for it. I, I do, but it, you know, I have a basis for the format. But you know, the sensibility has changed a lot. That, that's something new that I had to learn. And so the formatting, you know, I, I have final draft and it formats for you. Yep. And I think when a person goes from fiction to uh, screenplay writing, I think it's pretty hard because all the things that are really valued in fiction you cannot write in right. a screenplay. Right. That is a director's job, and that is that is an actor's job. That is somebody else's job. Right. And right. you you have to. It's really good practice because you have to get it down to the skeleton. Yes. yes. I think that's hard. It was for hard for me the first time that I did it, but now I, uh, you know, I understand it and I and I like doing it. But I think it's the most challenging part, and I think it's also will make everybody a better fiction writer, because you you understand the bones and you can build from there out. Right. You know. Right. Thank you so much for making the time. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Since talking with BK back in April, we've kept in touch through the magic of Facebook. In preparing for this episode, I caught her through Messenger just before she headed back out on the road. So here's BK's latest news. And instead of summarizing it myself, it's read for us by friend and future podcaster, Houston Public Media's Adele Howen. Thanks for checking in, Ben. Well, since April, a lot has changed. After working with the project's director for nearly two years and making considerable progress, we parted ways professionally, but remain friends. I'm working with a new director whom I like very much. Now, for many reasons, I can't yet talk about this director. I can say that it's really exciting working with a woman. We share strong sensibility of art and social environmental justice. She has also worked with Wolves, which is handy for this particular project. I asked BK for words of wisdom and advice for those considering taking the plunge from fiction to screen. I think writing novels, creating stories is a little like architecture. Until you shape the story or the space, there's nothing there. You begin with the bones, the structure, and you add on from there. Everything is fleshed out. Writing a screenplay gets you to the marrow of a story real fast. When you write a novel, it's possible to skip ahead, and sometimes you don't realise you've made that skip until you get to page 150, and the thing starts to fall apart. With a screenplay, every piece of the puzzle must be tight every step of the way or the whole thing tumbles. A screenplay is constantly teetering until it's not. There's also the very active collaboration that takes place in screenplays. Here, the internal evolution of a story becomes external in a way. Similar processes, both creating story and character, and for me, creating complex psychologies. But the differences in each process respectively builds muscle and makes each process stronger. Again, many thanks to Adele Howland from Houston Public Media, reading BK Lawrence update on the often circuitous, twisty route needed 
when going from page to screen. Coming up in chapters three and four, insights from a former Pixar screenwriter and a cinephile fiction writer turned screenwriter and producer. Stay with us. Since it's intermission of episode 15, let's find some intermission music. I just have to mention our sponsor, Talking Book. They did slip me a little bit of cash so I'd say something nice about him. Talking Book is the futuristic audiobook publisher you've been dreaming of. Yeah, you heard me. Talking Book is the indie audiobook publisher. Here's the skinny. Audiobooks are now the fastest growing segment in publishing. They've even started outselling their print counterparts. So that means you want a team of sincerely dedicated collaborators to transform your story into this exploding new literary medium. Talking Book will produce, distribute, and promote the hell out of your audiobook. They're in your corner. Sky's the limit. All right, that's my spiel. Just become a part of the Talking Book gang. Turn your book into a radical audiobook and more. Check them out, talkingbook.pub. Steven Soderbergh once put it, talent plus persistence equals luck. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Ben Hess. This is Story Geometry, page to screen, and now chapter three. Ride the horse in the direction that it's going. And that screenwriter talking with me at breakfast in Los Angeles, well, here he is. My name is Jonathan Stewart. I am a screenwriter. I live in Hermosa Beach, California, and I've been out in L.A. for nearly 20 years. And I work with a writing partner, A.L. Podell. The two of us are Podell and Stewart. For an audience that doesn't necessarily know, you're in this pool of of a professional screenwriter who makes a living at this, but most of what you write doesn't get made yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not to paint it so black and white, and you hear these stories where properties spend, you know, languish in development or they never get made or yeah. and they go through, they pass hands in terms of ownership of the of the contents. What's your perspective on I mean, the breakdown? You know, this, it is what it is. Like, if you talk to any writer, almost any writer, the majority of stuff that they write is not on IMDb. It's not credited. It's not uncommon to see a writer with, like, one or two sort of big credits and you're like what was he doing before that like how did he get you know that huge movie and it's because of the goodwill essentially that he's built up with or she has built up with you know buyers around town and for one reason or another a movie is just never gone i mean most don't you know Uh, even you know most scripts do not get made into films you know when i was toying with coming down to la we talked about episodic tv and you were like yeah haven't really written much for it you seem to be a big fan of it. Let's just talk a little bit about your decision on sticking with feature film scripts and kind of what that decision has done for your career track. My writing partner and I are, are at this point still, I don't know, 95% feature guys. It's sort of our brand, sort of what people know us for. But actually this year is our first year that we have jumped or uh, dived, I guess, headfirst into the network pitching season. So. We did take out two TV shows this year, both dramas, totally different. One he sort of spearheaded and one I've sort of spearheaded. As feature guys, we have had enough success in our careers to be in the position to be able to pitch TV at, as creators as the highest level, you know. So let's talk a little bit about The Blacklist. I assume it was a huge milestone for the career and kind yeah. of put you guys on a different trajectory. So 2012, yep. your, your script, Seuss, 
was selected as a number two of the Hollywood blacklist. Give us a little bit of background of what the blacklist is and then more about that particular script and that project. So Franklin Leonard is a guy who started this thing called the blacklist and it started off as just sort of a internal list that was passed around all the agencies and, and studios as like an informal list of people's favorite unproduced scripts from a certain year. And it became this guide for people to read scripts over the holidays, actually, over Christmas break. And so over time, it evolved into a thing that actually meant something, meant a lot for the writers who were on this thing. Because all of a sudden, they'd go from obscurity, you know, on the bottom of a pile on somebody's desk to being like, oh, you got to read this. That put us in a position to be, begin pitching on feature projects and and ultimately led to you know, 13 months that we spent up at Pixar working on Cars 3 up there. It's, it's just been a, a really, to this day, it still is you know, a badge of honor, I guess. So Pudel and Stewart have this track record of writing original scripts. And they created this while Ayal was working as an actor and Stu was juggling production projects. They both started families. The work was getting noticed to the point where all of a sudden they had representation, manager, and agent. And what was their first project from that blacklist success? A rewrite of a script that itself was an adaptation of the historic romantic novel, Juliet, by Anne Fortier. Ah, Hollywood. It was an interesting one because there was the existing IP on it was the, the first draft of the script, and then also the, the underlying novel, which was uh, you know this beautiful novel, but it was very intricate and complex, and a lot of things that, that made the translation process to the screen very difficult. We also had two sets of producers on the film too, and a director who did not all necessarily have the same vision for, for what they wanted to see, you know, better or worse. So I, I, I chalk that one up as a, as a tremendous learning experience. In terms of the adaptation process, you know, it's one of those things I think you, you look at a book and you think, oh, well, writing a screenplay from that should be easy, right? It's basically cut and paste, right? But, you know, stack that up against the, the fact that almost any time you say, oh, yeah, I read that book and then I saw the movie, and wow, I was really disappointed when I saw the movie, that happens so often. I think it's, it is a super challenging thing to, because novels are so mentally evocative, they, they allow you to, your imagination to engage, and you create these worlds in your mind, and how often is that going to line up with the filmmaker's same vision? Probably not very often. So there's a certain alchemy in that, just like just like creating any motion picture. But it's a it's a it's a trick. It is definitely you know trying to trying to get what you know some of these these laws in a in a novel that don't necessarily apply to you know the world of screenplays. Um, trying to decide what's important and how to how to how to build the rhythm of a of a feature film that's 90 to 120 minutes long. It's a different beast. It's a different beast. Yeah, and so and in some I think work more easily than others. Yeah. I, I think the the major difference on a technical level between between literary authors and 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 screenwriters is we're not creating an end product. We're creating blueprints. We're architects essentially. So, and I also think that the the industry itself is is a little broader you know the the audience that we're hoping to reach with a with a blockbuster movie is bigger than most books 
since we've known each other and worked on some stuff together, you've gone from director, writer, producer, and now writer is your your first and foremost. When did you decide to make that that focus? Somebody once gave me a great piece of advice, which is you ride the horse in the direction that it's going, uh, particularly in Hollywood. Once we started getting some success on the on the screenplay side of things, particularly when we were able to begin making a living doing it, yeah, it sort of took over 100% focus. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Easy. <laughs> die-hard listeners will remember Alan Heathcock from Story Geometry's first several episodes. I caught a whiff of some screenwriting that he was working on and just had to get caught up. We chatted recently via Skype just before he traveled to Ireland to teach. So without further ado, here's Chapter 4, Adrenaline Rush. Since we met in April of 2015 at Boulder, you've won another fellowship, Idaho Commission of the Arts. You've been teaching everywhere, Chamonix and Esalen and all over the place. So let's talk about the fellowship. Start off there and congratulations. Yes, it's very cool. Anytime you can get a fellowship, especially one that doesn't have any strings attached. This time that this fellowship has bought is going to be largely towards me trying to mount a final charge of getting this this big old battle novel that I have eight years invested in now. And I think I at least have the next year, including these eight months of hard writing, to have it whipped. And I'll, I'll be happy to have it whipped. So thank you to the Idaho Commission for the Arts for that uh, the fellowship. Alan's award-winning short story collection, Volt, is made up of eight stories. Now, two of them have been made into short films, Fort Apache and Smoke. And he's adapting a third himself called The Staying Freight. Smoke it seemed to go through a crowdfunding campaign and you were involved in helping them raise a little bit of money. So in terms of your involvement with, with that project, how did you agree to, to work with these younger, younger filmmakers? And did you help work on the script or did you kind of keep the producer kind of hat on and let them do their thing? I had Ford Apache made before this and I had nothing to do with that. I just let them do the whole thing. And I had felt with Fort Apache, I'm like, I, you know, I kind of missed an opportunity for me to learn something about something that I would have had a lifelong passion about and would like to get involved in uh, in a bigger way. So eventually I went to Stephen and Cody and said, here's what I'd like to do. I'll pitch in a little bit of money and I will use my voice and uh, my social media presence to help back the film, to help raise money that I get to come on as a full creative partner, as a producer. I get to be on set and, uh, you know, I get certain approvals over the content, including script. Mm -hmm. And so that I came on and then I just started learning. And that was the main thing is I wanted to learn as much. I was a motivated learner forever. I'd wanted to get in film. I just didn't. And I knew movies. I just didn't know, you know, how they Process. were made. Yeah. Yeah. whole process thing. So I jumped on with talking to them about the script, and we had lots of wonderful conversations about that, and then talking with them about everything. And then I was on set for the production and to see the way it was set up and scheduled and the, the way they as directors worked with uh, the actors and everyone's job. And I just, I tried not to be a pest, but I just went around to everybody and, and like, what do you do? What do you do? Hey, what do you do? And I just found it completely fascinating. But that was, it was a wonderful experience for me, mainly because it was this 
you know, I think we get to a certain age and we forget how invigorating learning can be. Especially with uh, the generation behind us, right? You, you get this energy and this youthful spirit that infuses the air uh, around us. Absolutely. There's Absolutely. something about a film set, too. I mean, uh, my job as a fiction writer, I sit by myself all day. And there's something glorious about that. But to be on a film set and like the adrenaline rush you get of all of these people who have jobs that have to be done well for the film to come out correctly and they're all working as a team and it very much naturally builds with this camaraderie and also this kind of creative tension that's really wonderful and uh you know i i thought it was just kind of a privilege to be on set and to be a part of the things. So it's just a wonderful experience, but I, and I just learned so much. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about, uh, you know, given eight years invested in the current novel that you're, that you're working on and, and thinking about the, the work with the short films, now you've been writing the Staying Freight adaptation yourself. How do you make the decision to, to kind of, you're, you're on a path with the novel and then you have a parallel track now with the script and, and focus more on visual storytelling. I'm curious how that all came to be, and what, and you obviously have a strong interest in film. I've always been a huge cinephile. I was a, a very much so a film fan way before I was a fan of the written word. I grew up. My parents are huge cinephiles, and they would just take me. I was the youngest uh, child in my family, and, and they would just take me to whatever movies they were going to see, regardless of if it was appropriate for me or not. <laughs> I remember it at an early age. You know, seeing all the president's men and tender mercies, Apocalypse Now, which was a tough one, but still one of my favorite films. Das Boat. I remember seeing the German film. That, and so they would just take me to movies. And so film was my first love. And I have thought that if I grew up in this era as opposed to when I did grow up, I might just be a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. The digital era of what you can do with, uh, you know, even a camera that you can buy for a few thousand dollars is some editing equipment is is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Especially compared to the era that that I was in. So I think that's when I made the jump to writing fiction. Uh, two, I was at the University of Iowa. I had this amazing writing school. So I found that I can write fiction and get what was in my imagination on the page in full. And it was much more uh, rewarding for me. But my my passion for film never left. I always love film. I've watched over 200 films a year for, I've kept a journal now since 1995. So that's what, 21 years of formally thinking about film in this sort of way. That's an incredible volume of quantity of films per year. And do you have a, like a film journal that's like a little notations of, you know, first impressions or kind of a brief review or just even a list of what you've seen? I used to do all that of, of writing actually little mini reviews. I did that for a long, long time. Now I'm too busy to do that much. I keep a running list, uh, a notebook of any film that I've given five stars to in my little rating system. Uh, I add to the book because that's me kind of in my own way. I'm curating what I think great you know, literature and cinema is. And it's very helpful. And I go back to that notebook all the time and thinking about what quality it is and looking over films that moved me deeply and why and picking out scenes to watch again and study. And so because it's what I do for a living, also it's become a tremendous reference guide. But just on some, in base, some basic way, I love 
film. I love watching films. It's become a regular part of my days. And I love books, and books give me something different. But that experience that I get from watching a movie is uh, it's just one of the greatest aspects of the human experience for me. And I know it sounds like a big statement, but it's true, and I prove it night after night. And so it sounds like to me that the the energy and an experience of that process with smoke was another seed to kind of, I can take staying freight and adapt it myself. And it sounds like you're, you've made a feature length script out of it or have been working on a feature length script. How has the adaptation process been going for you? And what, what are some initial thoughts on the whole screenwriting game versus the, the fiction writing side? I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm loving it. It's been really rewarding. And, and you know, it's, it's going to go both ways that there are lots of things that I brought in as a fiction writer. And there are some very clear differences, but for the most part, I think if you know how to tell a story, you know how to tell a story. A lot of that carried over, meaning that for this story, The Stain Freak, I was able to understand that it is three clear dramatic movements, like a three-act play, Mm -hmm. and that I can understand how long each act needed to be for it to add up to this this length that it needed to be. And all that went so smoothly. It made complete sense to my imagination. Maybe it's because I've watched, you know, 3,600 films. And I've been thinking about this for so long, but it just came out very neatly. And it could be just because this particular project was, I think, uh, custom-made to be a feature-length film. But all, all of it's going really well. And I'm a naturally visual writer anyway. Given all your film watching and thinking about the adaptation process just in general, have there been other films or other adaptations that you've seen that you were really impressed by or, or, or that you weren't really impressed by that kind of stuck out and gave you some, some guidance? I was asking uh, the creative executive at Sycamore, you know, with our initial conversations, I'm like, you know, I'm as a professor of, Fiction writing, this was an embarrassing question because I, I can answer every question on that side. I've done it for 21 years. I've read hundreds of books. But on the screenwriting thing, I found it really challenging to understand what a great screenplay looked like because they're all very different. They told me to look at Nick Cornsby's Wild, and it's a great screenplay. I've read the book, too, and uh, Cheryl Strayed, the author, is a friend of mine, and it did a great job of taking the content of that book and translating it in a very clever way into a, into a screenplay that would make a film that worked. That's one I, I paid a lot of attention to, Into the Wild. The, the John Krakauer book turned into a, a film I thought was really interesting because the book itself is much more journalistic and it had to be kind of fleshed out into dramatic scenes. And I thought... They did a, a very interesting job. Uh, both of those are scripts about transformations and have someone going off into the wilderness, which uh, my screenplay has as well. And then I looked at the Coen Brothers Fargo, hmm. which was very interesting because their screenplays are very clean. Just there's very little kind of setup description in any given scene. And it's just bang, 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 bang. I wrapped up asking Alan about his future plans, writing fiction, film, and television. Have the Stain Freight screenplay, I think, done. And I'm going to make a hard charge on getting this novel done. But as soon as I get this novel done, I think, in my imagination, my next step will be to really, really push hard on 
doing some more film and TV work. Well, Alan, thanks so much for making the time. It's great to see you via Skype and look forward to catching up in person sometimes, Jen. You're doing a great job on the program. Best to you, man. We are less than 60 days away from the 2016 election. And as you may know, I'm curating an election year lit list of works by, about, or influenced by presidential election cycles. Alan recommended the award-winning film of the book, All the President's Men, that I'd selected previously. So for another election year lit option in the visual variety, here again is screenwriter Jonathan Stewart. I'll give you two that jump to mind right away. All the President's Men is classic. Got to see that if you haven't. And I always loved that movie, Dave, I think it's called. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Kevin Klein. He ends up like, you know, being a, a, you know, nobody off the streets who happens to look like the president who's just had a heart attack and he fills in and it's this sort of light comedy. I get so riled up about politics that it's nice to have things to distract you from from that. That's why I love Comedy Central and, and miss the other Jon Stewart uh, quite a bit just because he... His ability to bring levity into these just absurd situations is, you know, an invaluable service to society, I believe. I cannot think of a better way to close than by bringing levity into the absurd of our political cycle. That, as they say, is a wrap on episode 15, Page to Screen. Tremendous thanks to guests Andre DeBuse III, B.K. Lauren, Jonathan E. Stewart, and Alan Heathcock and also for the ongoing support from Talking Book. They're at talkingbook.pub. Don't forget to sign up for future literary workshops at writingxwriters.org. Hit me up at Ben Hass on Twitter, and the show is Story Geometry on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>